you have your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind uh, reading with me, uh, Acts 10, verses 1 to 8. Uh, if you're using a Bible in the pews, it's page 778. Cornelius calls for Peter. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up to a, as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back in a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Keep your Bibles open right there, if you would. And I want to start this morning by just finishing the rest of this story. It's a fascinating story that uh, Cornelius, who is a Gentile, receives a vision from God and is supposed to go and send someone to Peter. And Peter then receives these visitors. And so we pick the story up at verse 9, and it says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And obviously this is something that's initiated by God. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being left down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, if you know anything about Judaism... That is quite a request because the law specifically mentions that these kinds of animals are not to be eaten by Jews. And so this was quite a challenge to Peter's faith. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to this house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. Now, as the story goes on, and many of us, of course, know this story, there is certainly some hesitancy in Peter's mind about what he's needing to do here. And in fact, that's why the vision occurs so that that hesitancy can be overcome. But Peter eventually does, in fact, go. He travels with them. And there are wonderful blessings that take, that take place because of that. So Peter travels to see Cornelius. 
I want you to turn over to verse 44, and we'll pick the story up there. Peter shares with them the gospel when he arrives to see Cornelius. And in verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. So he ordered that they might be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. It's a great story. It's a great story. It's not just an average story. It's a great story of a man like Peter, who is in one sense hesitant because of his past, but who's called by God to do something wonderful that's an incredible challenge, really, to his faith and his personality, but who is nonetheless willing to go through with it. And because he does, God richly blesses him and Cornelius and the kingdom. And that's what happens when people listen to God. And I praise the Lord that Peter does that. Now, there's a few things I want us to, to get here. One is that Cornelius is, from the outset, a God-fearer. He actually had a particular status, a preferred status, by the Jews. He believed in God, even though he's a Gentile, he believed in God. And this was quite common in the ancient world that there would be Gentiles who would be around Jews and who would actually believe in the God of the Jews and start to worship this God. But, like many others, Cornelius had not given himself completely to Judaism. In other words, he'd not given himself over to the process of becoming what they called a proselyte. A proselyte was one who would actually put himself in a position of becoming a Jew and go through the process of becoming a Jew. Cornelius hadn't done that. He was worshiping, but was not a full proselyte. Definitely a good man. And we see he was a good man by the kind of things that he does. He's one who was taking care of those who are in need. The text specifically says that he was generous with them. It says that he prayed regularly. Now just think about that for a moment. We've got a man who is completely devoted in one sense to worshiping one God. He sees the needs of the needy and gives to them and he prays regularly. What do we got there, folks? I think we have a person who is fairly godly. We've got a person who is doing some really good things. And so we've got what I would characterize as essentially a righteous man. Wouldn't we like to say that all of us are looking to the needs of others and giving to them and praying regularly and seeking to obey this one God? Like we would, we, if all of us were doing that, we'd think, praise the Lord that all of us were being so righteous. And still, God chooses to spend time in the kingdom to make the effort to have Peter come all the way to see Cornelius. Why does he do that? There's one reason. It's because being good in the eyes of God doesn't actually cut it. There are lots of good people here. 
But if I ask almost any of you, why is it that you have any kind of status before God at all? There is, there's probably not one person in the room who would say, it's because I'm such a good person. John Cogman's a good person, but not even John would say, it's because I'm so righteous. And if he did, we'd all think, what an arrogant guy. <laughs> and we'd all think, oh, no, you're not. And Brenda would be saying, let me tell you. No, John couldn't make that claim about himself. He knows that that's not where he stands before God as a righteous person because of his own merit. He stands there only because of Jesus. And so the first point that we need to see this morning is simply this. There are some very good people around us, but who are lost and need Christ. Now, we know that there are bad people around us who are lost and need Christ. But the fact is, there are good people around us who are lost and need Christ. And so God is calling us to do something about these good people who still need to know Jesus. Being good is not what humankind really needs. No one you know who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord is good enough. They need Christ. And so it's very possible this morning that you're a person who's come here, it's a new year, maybe you were thinking, boy, I think I should go to church, you know? The year has started. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to start going to church again. So you have, and you're thinking to yourself, I am a good person. I don't have many doubts that you are. You probably are. You may be just as good as Cornelius, finding yourself giving to the needs of the poor, praying often. And I praise the Lord that those things are part of your life. But I want to also say to you this morning that you still need Jesus. That we all stand before God needing the blood of Christ to forgive us. And I would encourage you this morning to give serious thought to that. Just the fact that we still all need Jesus. There are some very good people around us, but they still need Christ and we, I think, as a church, have an obligation to help them see this. The second thing I want us to think about uh, in relation to all of this is the, the parallel between Peter's hesitancy with Cornelius and our own hesitancies about sharing Christ with those who need him. Now, this is interesting. I don't know of anybody in the room who is actually prejudicial against someone else coming to know God where Peter probably was. Like if I said to any of you, do you think there's a certain class of people, a certain kind of people who don't really deserve to know Jesus and therefore you're not willing to share Christ with them because of who they are in life? I don't think anybody in the room would say, yes, I've got that kind of prejudice. There's a certain group of people that I would say don't deserve to hear the gospel and therefore we need to preach to everybody except them. Very unlikely that anybody would say that. So in that sense, there isn't that much of a parallel between us and Peter. And yet there is. And let me illustrate it this way. Here's a story. A tribal chief had it reported to him that there was a group among his people that was not happy with him. 
and that was planning to try and take over the tribe. But the one who reported this to him didn't know who the rebellious tribe members were. So the chief decided that he would ask to come before him the ten tribe members that he thought might be most likely to be in on the rebellion. He would then ask these ten to take on the important responsibility of caring for the tribal arsenal of spears, bows, darts, clubs, and also the food that the tribe kept in storage for times when they were under attack by other tribes. The chief knew that any rebellious tribe members would want to see the chief's military strength and ability weakened so that they would meet with less opposition when the time for the rebellion came. He would, want, he would watch then, the chief would, to see who it was that did not properly take care of his share of the tribe's store of weapons and food under their charge, and he would then know who the rebellious ones were. He could then carry out the tribal penalty for rebellion, which was the punishment of death. So, over a period of five months, the chief checked carefully on the conduct of the ten to see how well they took care of their share of the tribal cachet of supplies and weapons. At the end, it was clear what had happened. Eight of those who were responsible for very uh, who were very diligent in taking care of their share of the tribal stores were identified. The weapons and food for which they were responsible was in great shape and were ready for use. But two of the ten who had been chosen supervisors of the weapons and food, under their care, these weapons and food were in very poor condition. The weapons were damaged, they were disorganized, the food had not been properly stored and maintained, and some of it had been stolen. The difference between the goods shared for, uh, cared for by the eight and the goods cared for by the two was so clear that the chief had no doubt about who the rebellious tribe members were. He asked the two to be brought before him, and he accused them of disloyalty and charged them with rebellion. One of the men, in response to the charges, was obstinate and angry and admitted to the accuracy of the charge. He'd always hated the chief. He was jealous. He wanted himself to be in control of the tribe. The chief then had the man taken away and killed. The second man, however, begged for mercy and said that the claim that he was part of the rebellion was absolutely untrue. He brought forth witnesses who testified that he was loyal to the chief. In fact, one of the witnesses was one of the other eight who had been selected by the chief to care for the supplies and who did a superb job in doing so. This witness was a fellow who had, all, who had almost been selected as chief several years before when the present chief was chosen to lead, but he had nonetheless always shown himself a loyal tribe member. He now testified that he knew the one who was now being accused was totally loyal to the present chief. He said that on numerous occasions, the two of them had talked about how they would always support the present chief. But he also mentioned that the one accused tended to be lazy and often got caught up in his own affairs. He was at times an irresponsible person and the goods he was responsible for were in terrible condition, but he was not part of the rebellion. Well, in the course of time... As the investigation went on, it was made clear to the chief that the testimony about the one who was now being tried was true and that he was not part of the rebellion. 
However, it was also clear that the man's irresponsibility was a threat to the security of the tribe because the goods over which he was in charge were in no better condition than the one who had intentionally sabotaged the tribal stores. As an example to the others of the need for diligence about tribal security and because the chief was not a man filled with mercy, the second man whose goods were in poor condition was taken out and killed just like the one who was rebellious. I find that interesting. Our attitude, unfortunately, has sometimes the same result as what Peter's was in the beginning. I don't think that any of us don't care about the lost or hold prejudice against any of them. I think we love people out there. We don't need another sheet to come down in front of us and explain to us that it's okay to preach the gospel to everyone. But here's the point of the story. There are times when the practical results of our being caught up in the world, focused on ourselves or on the cares of this world, have the same impact for those around us. They remain without Jesus. And whether the second fellow was intentionally sabotaging the goods or not, the tribe was placed in jeopardy by what the second person didn't do in acting irresponsibly. Completely different things going on, but unfortunately the same results. And I wonder if sometimes, if that just needs to be on our minds. There isn't anybody here who would be prejudicial against someone and say, they don't deserve to hear the gospel. But unfortunately, sometimes, getting caught up in the world, and sometimes even in the work of the church, can cause us to not do what needs to be done with respect to those who need Jesus. And the practical result for those people is unfortunately the same. Ron? I'd like you to come up here if you would. I asked Ron Bailey if he would come and be an example for me this morning. And the fact is, is that I'm putting Ron in a very vulnerable position. Because I'm using Ron as an example today of someone who could easily get caught up in the things of the world or even in the work of the church, to the point that all the things that Ron needs to do for Jesus don't get done. Now you think to yourself, wow, are you ever putting him on the spot? Ron doesn't deserve this, getting him up in front of everybody, making him look as though he's some kind of lackluster Christian who's a sinner. But the fact is, is that I could have selected anybody in the room and I could have selected me. Because this second point holds for me and it holds for so many of us. And it may well hold for Ron. And so I ask Ron if he would just address this for a moment in his own life. Because when I look around and I just ask the question, are we doing what God wants us to do? I think the majority of us would say, no, we're not. 
And we know that God wants us to. And we know that there are wonderful things that could happen if we did. So, brother, where are you at? <laughs> so, so uh, I might take longer than he expects. <laughs> I think there's three key things for me that uh, stop me from focusing on building relationships with other people that would allow me to really talk to them about Jesus, okay? And I think that's really what Kelly's talking about here. Number one is busyness, and I'll talk a little bit about that. I get very busy. And number two is a compartmentalization of my life. Okay, so church is church, work is work, friends are friends, but let's not get them mixed up because we need to compartmentalize them. And the third is society. So let me just deal with society first. We live in a society that says that everybody's okay. And as a result, it is somewhat against society to actually talk to someone about Jesus because it suggests that there might be something wrong in their life. Okay? And, I, and that's wrong, but it's just the nature of society, and it's something that we have to deal with um, in terms of how we approach things. So we do have to get out of our comfort zone a little bit. I think number one is back to busyness. I'm very busy. I serve on the executive management committee of our company. The higher you go in a company, the more that you are asked to take personal time to work for company. In other words, to travel, to do things over dinner, these kinds of things. And so, you know, I get pretty busy. But I'm also busy with things outside of work. I'm chairman of the board for Western Christian College. Is that a good work? Absolutely. Are we struggling right now? Absolutely. If For those of you that are in the in-circle with Western, we'll know that we're absolutely struggling to make ends meet at the school. And so I spend a fair bit of time on that. I'm chairman of the missions committee. I lead a small group. And so, you know, these are all church-related things or parachurch things, but they still keep me very busy doing those things. And then there's family and the, the desire to do things, to go to our cabin, to enjoy time skiing, those kinds of things. And so, again, there's another draw on time that takes you away from the time that you would need to actually build relationships with other people. And then there's compartmentalization. Compartmentalization says that I don't want to get into a personal relationship with people at work because I don't have time for that. I want to work, get into a personal relationship with people that are in my small group because I need to build those relationships and I need to dedicate time to that. And so I think we actually get caught in this compartmentalization as well, and certainly I do personally. And then there's another piece which is just about me, and that is that I, I don't share very deeply. Chris will know this. Um... But I'm, quite honestly, standing up in front of you, this is about as deep as I get in terms of sharing, right? And so I think in terms of building relationships with people, you have to be willing to share pretty deeply to actually build those relationships to the point where you can have the relationship that would allow you to to talk to them about Jesus uh, in an appropriate way.
Now, he said right there near the end that this is not an easy thing for him, that he doesn't share easily. And yet, you know, Ron, I think you absolutely nailed it. Now, Ron and I did not discuss any details, not one detail in terms of what he might share. I just said, reflect on this in your own life. And so his points, all of that is all Ron. None of that came from me. I think he absolutely nailed it in terms of what is the, the common experience of many of us, most of us in our world today. That's just, that's just the way it is. And so there's a sense in which I put Ron on the spot and he had to be a bit vulnerable and even confessional. And I appreciate very much him sharing the way that he did. But as I said, it could be most of us. Almost all of us could be standing in his shoes and talking about the same things. What I find so wonderful is that Peter had obstacles that would cause him from sharing with Cornelius the way that he did. Even prejudices that would prevent him from sharing with Cornelius the way he did. And he overcame those in his life because God worked in his life and showed him that something else was called for. And I would say to Ron and to all of us and to Kelly that there's something else that's called for. Like if Ron is so caught up in Western Christian College and so caught up in leading our mission ministry here and so caught up at Nexon and so caught up with all the things that are there in his life that he ends up not ever getting done the thing that Jesus most needs in our world in terms of us communicating to others about Jesus, then Ron, honestly, and all it's the, it's the same for all of us, he needs to make some changes. And you think, well, Kelly, that's kind of confrontational, don't you think? Isn't that a little bit too straightforward? Aren't you being too challenging there of Ron's life? Well, I would be if it wasn't the Holy Spirit who does the same thing with all of us regularly. And who's challenging us in the same way. If I ask God, God, is it right for us to challenge each other in this way? Is this what we're supposed to be focusing on? Do these changes need to be made? I think what Jesus would say, of course. Do I need to send some more sheets down? I will. Because he knows how crucial this is. And so that's one of the things also that this passage, I think, shows us about what it means for us to to really reflect on our lives, to to see what Jesus wants us to get accomplished and, and to make the adjustments that need to be made. We aren't rebellious in answering the call to be an ambassador for Christ. None of you looks at God and says, no, God, I won't do it. But unfortunately, the results sometimes are the same. But just like last week, the point is not guilt. The point is motivation. I think we care about the lost. I think we want to see the church grow. I think we're even committed to this task at some level. Most of us have a genuine desire to see other people come to Jesus. The problem is in the process of moving from desire to making it reality. If I ask Ron, Ron, do you want to talk to people about Jesus? Do you want people to know Christ? Do you want the church to grow? There's no question about what his answer is going to be. Would he be leading our mission ministry here if he didn't care about those who were lost and want to see them come to Jesus? Of course, that's his concern. But there might be need for correction. In many ways, we're ahead of Peter in this game because we don't have the prejudices that Peter had. But that might, but we still might need to make some changes. Last week, we talked about how there are people you know who don't know Christ 
And we saw last week that you are likely the one that God is calling to lead them to Jesus. If you're the Christian around them, if you're the one who has relationship around them, then most likely it's you who has that call from God for you to minister to them about Christ. We don't have to be convinced about the world's need. We don't have to be convinced about the importance of our roles. If nothing else, we should have caught the importance from last week's lesson. But what we still lack is adequate motivation to overcome the distractions of the world to the point that we set these things aside so that we can focus on the central kingdom things. And as I said, sometimes it's not the things of the world, even it's even the things of the church. So I don't have any doubts about whether or not the average Christian cares about Jesus, cares about his kingdom, cares about people. But does the average Christian find him or herself so distracted by other things that he or she doesn't typically think enough about the need to intentionally make an effort to bring about the salvation of those around them? And I think the answer is yes. Now, here's the third crucial point I think we need to get from this study from this reading this passage. There are out there people like Cornelius. There are seekers, and they're not as scarce as we think. One of the major reasons, I think, that we don't talk to people about Jesus more is because we think they're not going to listen. We think they don't want to hear. And there is, that's certainly true about some people. My own father said to me, I don't care about Jesus Christ and all of this, and he swore. So it didn't do me any good to keep pushing the issue with my dad. He, was, he wasn't listening very well. But there are people out there who will listen. There are people who hurt all over our world. There are people who have spiritual interests all over our world. There are people who even feel guilty about who they are in their own life. There are people who look and say, there's got to be more to life than this. And those are the people that we need to be there for. We need to be ready to talk to them about the answer that is there for them in their lives. If I'm a medical researcher and I find a cure for cancer, there are many things I could do that would enhance humankind. But the most important thing that I could do is to find people who know they have cancer and apply my cure. There are people out there who have the disease of not knowing Christ. And they feel it. They know it. But we need to find them. And apply the cure. You know, as a leader uh, in the church here. I have some responsibilities. There's one in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 that says this. It says specifically that my job in our church is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of Christ. That is part of my job. That might be the major part of my job. So I don't feel very bad about commending to all of us Good works. And part of that service, those good works 
to which you're to be directed and to which I'm to direct myself, part of that, part of that needs to go on as we think about those in this world who need Jesus. We need to see how much the world around us controls our priorities. How much sometimes even the church and its ministry controls our priorities away from the central task of talking to people about Christ. What we learn from this story is that even Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who spent three years with the Lord, was at times confused about his role. He at times needed some correction. And so it shouldn't surprise you if I would find myself occasionally messed up and that I don't get my priorities right. And it shouldn't surprise you if you don't. Peter didn't always get it right. I actually find some encouragement in that. Isn't it nice to know that the Apostle Peter at various times, really messed up, that puts me maybe even on a plane with Peter. I mess up too. But God worked tremendously with Peter. His life was completely changed in terms of his ministry. And he becomes someone who who so powerfully leads other people to Jesus. There's no reason why we can't do the same. I think God wants to help us with that. Look for a sheet when you go home today. It might come down in your presence. Let's pray. Holy Father, shape our lives so that they are more in conformity with your will, especially when it comes to our our desire to share you with others. Father, we live in a world among lost and dying people. Some of them very good people, but still lost and dying. Help us to see that. And then, Father, help us to overcome the things in our lives that prevent us from simply building relationships, as Ron talked about, and sharing with people the good news about what you've done in your son, Jesus. Father, in our lives, through your spirit, make this so. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.